Hi and welcome to episode eight of the Distinctive Leaders podcast with me, your host, Andrew Wallace. Today's guest is Lisa Gordon, chairman of Senkos Securities and during her time at Crystalis in the 90s, one of the youngest female board members in the country. After three years editing the student newspaper at a university in Dundee, it seemed like a career in journalism beckoned. But instead, Lisa took a left turn into the male-dominated world of financial services, kick-starting a career ascent up numerous ladders and through a few glass ceilings too. During this episode, we discuss the importance of asking questions and of allowing your curiosity to take you towards a career path that works for you. Wherever you are in your career, I think you'll find this chat really interesting and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, Lisa Gordon, thank you very much indeed for joining me on Distinctive Leaders Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Now, just to kick off, and I'm fascinated with the backstories of my guests, especially their formative years and how they began shaping them in those early years. So just take me back to the younger Lisa, what family life was like and, and what you were like. Well, I think you will have to ask my two sisters what I was like. I was the middle girl of three girls. We're all very different, all working, interestingly. We moved around a lot as children, so I went to quite a lot of different schools. This was with my father's work. And in some ways, I think that made us as sisters closer, but it also, I think, probably plays quite a big part in how we developed our social skills. Because as my mum always used to say, you know, if in doubt, ask questions. And we were always going into a new environment. And, you know, that particularly having had my own children go through school, I now realized actually just how difficult that was. So, you know, we are a very close family. Interestingly, and we can, you know, I'm sure we're going to touch on this later. There was no sense of any difference in genders in the house because obviously I was one of three sisters. So we were all just treated very much the same and we all ended up doing very different things and very different personalities. But as they say, you know, it's the it's the opposites that attract. And I think that's why we're all so close. You mentioned moving around a lot. So sort of what impact did that have on, on, on you as an individual, just in terms of, I think you've mentioned this to me before, just in terms of you develop skills, right? You develop skills in terms of being able to pick up life, you know, wherever the new environment takes you and sort of that inquisitive nature. But just tell me a little bit about how that sort of really shaped you. I think the positives are definitely that you develop the ability to go into a situation and make it obviously make it work i think the the opposite effect is that i have always been very very keen to put down deep roots certainly in my home life and so i haven't moved around a lot i've been very keen certainly domestically i haven't moved around a lot i've been very very keen for the children to have the stability of going through one or two schools having their network of local friends. And I think for me personally, I think one of the 
biggest aspects of my life has been the strong friendships I've made amongst, to be honest, you know, through the children and and other parents and mums in particular. And that network of girlfriends I didn't really have growing up. And there is no doubt that when life slings you the bows and arrows, it's your friends and your family that really get you through. And so I would be <laughs> really devastated if actually my husband said, you know, right, we're we're moving to the other end of the country because I think that the security of, of home and the security of those friendships who, you know, have been with me through thick and thin, I think has enabled me to achieve what I've achieved. Mm. And one, one of those moves, you, fairly early on, so after school you went up to the north of Scotland, mm. um, to university. What was the background and motivation behind that choice? To be honest, it wasn't really a choice. I moved school in lower six, midway through lower six. So I went into my mock A-levels with, you know, pretty much with no real sort of lead in. And as a result, I was not predicted to do particularly well at A-level. And I was encouraged to sort of set my sights lower down the league table in terms of university. And I actually, in the end, I exceeded all expectations, partly because, you know, bless him, my dad told me that I had three months, you know, at that point, three months in the run-up to the exams and actually just go for it and you'll have a great summer. And it was the best advice that he gave me. But, you know, my parents didn't go to university. I was the first person in 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 our family to go to university. So I didn't really know I had any options at that point of maybe reassessing where I went off the back of a different outcome on the A-level results than, than had been predicted. So I'd already been offered a place at Dundee and off I went. And that was a really daunting move for me. I remember traveling up with mum and dad, you know, and obviously, I mean, I, I, I am ashamed to admit this, but I mean, I was from from the South. I'd never even been to Scotland. And we were driving up and I remember dad saying, I think we'll stop for lunch. We're about halfway. And I'd already been in the car for about five or six hours. And I was like, oh my God. So it was a real change. It was a very different environment for me. It was quite a tough environment, if I'm honest. I was quite lonely, but it was another one of those situations where I was too far away to nip back home at the weekend. I had to just make the most of it. And I finally found my feet when I got involved actually with the university newspaper which I ended up editing for the last three years, a four-year course, for the last three years of my university, which is ironic because it was called Sassanac, which is the, um, as you probably know, which is a sort of Scottish insulting term for the English. So that was the the irony. But at that time, actually, it was, it was more than just an extracurricular activity. It was, you know, we were selling advertising and doing interviews and writing material. I mean, it was a full-time job. So that really became my focus at university. And you mentioned before that that sort of started to form your first thoughts around careers, just in terms of journalism potentially being that. So just just again, take us back to that sort of mindset and what were you thinking and, and why did you think that journalism might be the right thing for you? Again, I didn't really have big discussions. I didn't really, you know, bearing in mind, obviously Dundee wasn't on the milk round, so I didn't have a variety of careers laid out in front of me that I could 
consider different options. You kind of go with what you know if you have got sort of a fairly limited outlook. And, you know, journalism was what I'd been doing, obviously, in a very amateur way. But then I did get some some work experience. And I was studying English at university. I loved writing. I still love to write. So it was more a case of it was a natural, it felt like a more natural move for me. I think one of the issues when it came to it was in those days, you generally had to go to City of London or one of the universities to do, to do a journalism course. I'd already done four years at university. My dad, who's been, you know, an amazing influence in my life, made it very, very clear to me that I had to have a job when I graduated. Bearing in mind, as I just said earlier, I'd spent three out of the four years embedded in in producing the newspaper I had the classic anxiety attack of the fact that I thought oh my god I've really I've got to cram a four-year degree into about two months anyway I did but in meanwhile I was firing off literally hundreds of letters because of course this was 1988 they were letters at the time to to anybody and everybody out of a directory of companies that I found in order to try and get a job and I was offered a job conditional on me getting a 2-1 with a small firm, firm of stockbrokers and there's no greater incentive to really knuckle down for the last month or so when actually my job and my my ability to earn depended on me getting a 2-1 and there was a heck of a lot of work to do in those closing weeks. Mm. And, and in retrospect what sort of advice would you give any of the students eager to break into the industry that they want to, just in terms of what they should be doing during their studies to put them in a stronger position? Well, it's interesting because I did a careers talk actually to a sixth form last week. And I was saying to them that, and it is a cliche, but really try and get as as much exposure to different industries as you can. So Although, and I remember this with my own children, you know, pursuing work experience after GCSEs, it feels really, it feels like a bit of a bore because you've been, you've just come out of your exams and you just want to go and play basically in whatever way. And, but it's really, really important to get as much exposure to, you know, to be honest, any workplace, because as I kept saying to them, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, I didn't know anything at, at that age. so. Don't be afraid to ask anybody for access to work experience. The second thing I said to them, which of course they have the massive benefit, which we didn't, is LinkedIn in that it's a great source of information. So if if, if I was a 16, 17-year-old now, you know, you can plug any keyword into LinkedIn, anything that might interest you, whether it's, I don't know, advertising, cryptocurrency, whatever. And LinkedIn will take you to people and companies in that field. And that's an, and if you then look at people's profiles, it gives you so many pointers as to ways in which others may have broken into industries over the years. And so I think LinkedIn as a source of information is amazingly valuable to the younger generation. So my point is, I think just be very curious. And the other thing I said to the sixth form actually was, ask people questions. So I'm always amazed at how poor most people are about asking questions. So I was saying to them, you know, if you meet people, you know, whether it's people like me coming into school or whether it's friends of your parents, just ask them what they do. And then actually say, and what does that actually mean? You know, what do you literally do when you go into work during the day? 
because it's that curiosity that's going to open up many, many options for Mm. you. And the world of work is changing so rapidly, just in terms of if we think about our generation, Lisa, just in terms of what we generally went into the same industry. We might have moved around within that industry, but we generally stayed. I think our children's generation is a generation that will move multi-sector, multi-geography, multi-industry. And I think that, you know, as a result of that, that advice you're giving is so much more poignant in terms of try and experiment lots of different things. And what was successful 20, 30 years ago, or what was very, very popular from a role perspective may change today. And so exploration, I think, is just such an important piece of advice. So that's true. Tell us, because you just talked about there that you got your first job into stockbroking and then you moved into NatWest and, mm. and, and financial services. Having originally sort of thought maybe journalism and then all of a sudden you find yourself in financial services, what was it like back then in the sort of the 80s and 90s working in financial services as a woman in a male-dominated uh, environment? But just give us an idea as to what it was like and, uh, and, and how you found it. It was amazing. <laughs> so I, I was offered a job with a very small firm of stockbrokers as an analyst. And of course, I didn't know what that involved. It was amazing because I think the, there's very few jobs where you gain exposure to one to very senior levels of, of industry, but also you, where you gain a helicopter view across an industry. And essentially, as an analyst, obviously, as you know, you're, you know, you're, trained, to, you're trained to look down the road to predict you know, where a market might be going, where a sector might be going, and where that company might be going within that environment, and then obviously to make a call on behalf of, of the bank's clients. So I was very, very fortunate on two fronts. One, I met my husband. Uh, he was in the office across the square. And um, so we were married at 22, which is, you know, unbelievably young with hindsight when I now look at my children who are all in their mid-20s. Still married 34 years later. So that was one definite bonus. And the, and the second one was that the city is an incredibly galvanizing environment. And it still is, actually, ironically, I've come full circle and one of my roles is now back in the heart of the city. As a woman in that environment, I didn't feel any different to any of my colleagues. Now, maybe I didn't pick up anything (laughs) or wasn't picked up. Maybe it was because I was married, but, or maybe it was actually just that I was in this fantastic go-getting environment. So I got recruited, as you said, I was recruited within a year to County Nat West. And bearing in mind, that was not a job that I would have got direct from university given my academic journey. So I was recruited to County as a leisure media analyst. And County, again, you know, unbeknownst and probably relevant to me, had, had been through a really difficult period with the Blue Arrow scandal. And so when I joined, you know, county was sort of just coming up off its knees. So we now talk about culture as being such a fundamental part of business. When I look back at county, the culture was incredible, but we didn't know to call it that at the time. But it we were just, it felt like it was just us against the world. And we were going to prove to people that had written us off that we were to be taken seriously. So 
there was a guy that was brought in from the States to run it, a guy called Jim O'Donnell. And, you know, we used to, when I look back, it was like, we used to have that, you know, we're county, super county. But to a young person, to feel so much part of a team and a team that really wanted to win was an incredible environment. And I only spent five five years at county, but actually the friends I made are some of my longest standing friends. So I now recognize that we had an amazing culture, but we were just living it at the time. So we probably didn't appreciate it for what it was. And you mentioned going full circle. So you've been out of the industry and then back in the industry. Mm. We'd like to all think that financial services has changed. So you obviously had an incredibly good experience. and We know of some that haven't had quite that sort of experience. What has changed in your opinion, having come back in, and what are your observations with regards to with regards to that? It's a difficult one to answer, Andy, because as I say, I didn't have negative experiences. And in fact, I think the experiences I had, other people may have felt, you know, less comfortable than me. So it's difficult for me to answer that because I think I am quite robust, but I'm robust in that, you know, I mean, I'm not going to take any nonsense and I'm certainly not going to take anything inappropriate. But you know, I had a great relationship with all my colleagues and my male colleagues. And I literally cannot think of one occasion where I ever encountered what I would now call sexism. It may have gone on. I may not have got the bonus that my colleagues have got, but I don't know that and I wouldn't know that. All I know is that I was working with people that enabled me to make real progress and made work a lot of fun and I think that's a really important feature is if work is fun people will you know go back to what Steve Jobs says you know you've got to love what you do to be good at what you do and I loved what I was doing and to come back to your question you know I chair Sencos now which is a stockbrokers institutional stockbrokers and that is very much our mantra we operate as you know in a very heavily regulated industry we have to behave in in a way that that is reflective of that but that doesn't mean that you can't make work fun and I look at young people that I work with and I see so much of myself in them and I hope that we're creating the environment the you know that galvanizing environment because Senkos was has come back from some you know some some issues that it had in the past so again I feel that we've got that will to win culture and that is very gender agnostic. And you mentioned moving out of financial services and you you ended up leading a number of you had a number of leadership and advisory roles in, in media organizations what were any particular influential people or mentors that helped you along that transition? I mean, it's really interesting when I sit here and talk to you because I do think that there is actually some pattern which I probably didn't appreciate until you step back. That, as you say, I wanted to be a journalist. I went into a different industry for other reasons, but I actually did come back to media. And Chrysalis was obviously my my first real sort of corporate move after the city. I, I had a, a transitional step through the music industry, which led me directly to Chrysalis. Again, I think I've been really lucky because that environment was amazing. Now, it may not have been unique to Chrysalis because 
being in media in the 90s was always going to be fun. It was a high growth industry. It was high energy. You know, you could talk to people outside of work and they'd at least relate to what you do, whether it's newspapers or music or radio. So it was a great environment. I think Richard Huntingford, who was the chief exec, was and actually continues to be a great mentor to me. I remember him saying something very simple to me, which is, you know, when you walk to the car park every night, you've just got to ask yourself, have I done the best I can? And that's all you can do. And if you haven't, have a better go tomorrow. And if you have, great. And I think his, the reason I admire Richard so much is he's actually an accountant by training, but he's that one of those unique individuals that blends the great organizational skills of somebody with that sort of background with amazing people skills. His instinct for for people is fantastic. And there's not that many people that you meet who so successfully combine those different skill sets. And that's why I think he's a great leader. But I have also got to give credit to Chris Wright, who who gave me really my first big break when he recruited me to, to Chris List. And I was, you know, I just turned 28. I just had my first child. I don't think Chris even saw that. I don't think he saw my gender. I don't think he saw my age. I don't think he saw, although it's fairly obvious, <laughs> that I just had a baby. Because with his music A&R background, his whole instinct was if he spotted talent, however raw and unpolished, you just back it. And he'd seen me in action in my previous role, which was with the record industry's world trade body, where I'd done a year, 18 months. And he put me on the board of Chrysalis at 28, which, of course, you know, got all that publicity because I was the youngest apparently the youngest female director of a public company. But he said to me, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And again, that's a very simple philosophy. Don't subscribe to, and again, I talked to this about, to, to the sixth form about that. Don't ever be cowed by people that you think are more academic than you, that are more experienced by you. You know, you're all good enough in your own way. I love that advice around the, there is no, again, it's this message about there's no barrier on age. It's, it's, if you're good enough, you're good enough. And, and, and that should be the meritocracy that is there. And that's a real inspirational piece I think of advice. It, and I think that the age barriers have been dismantled. I think that is probably the single biggest difference is that <coughs> there was very much a sort of hierarchical structure in business hmm. and you almost had to climb the ladder through length of service that has completely gone hmm. which is a good thing and it is no secret that the creative and the media industries have been through some drastic evolution and change in the last 20 years so you mentioned the mm. 90s but mm. it's been going on since what are the big factors that you think are driving change now and and, and how does this influence where firms that you work with mm. like like edge investments you know choose to put their money i think there's two there's two things I'd say on that. One is that, and it's not exclusive to the media industries or any others, it's happened with the banks as well, is that when I look back, my training as an analyst was so fundamental to my approach to business now because, you know, as I said earlier, we were trained to lift our heads and look down the road. So many companies, and this is what I saw stepping into the other side, so many companies fail to do that, either because 
they're enjoying really good times or because actually they don't really want to lift their heads and look to a future where they don't occupy the same position. And the most extreme example of that is the music companies. And this is actually the reason Chris approached me to Chrysalis is I was at an IFPI board meeting. We used to host board meetings around the world because the board of IFPI was the chief execs of all the majors. So BMG, Sony, EMI, etc. And I remember in 1994 in a board meeting in Hong Kong, and bearing in mind I was 27 and these were the chief execs of all the global record companies. And I was doing a presentation on what we at that time called electronic delivery, which is obviously now streaming. So this was in 1994. And I mean, I won't go into the whole detail. It's actually in Chris's autobiography, if anybody's interested, but of, of the story. But, but the essence of it was that I was talking about a future which they did not want to contemplate, which was a future in which the record companies who, bearing in mind in the mid-90s, were making so much money from CDs they couldn't bank it fast enough. But also they owned every link in the value chain. So they, you know, Philips owned the CD manufacturing plants, also owned Polygram, the music company. They actually all had stakes in the retailers. So they literally owned every link in the value chain. And they didn't want to lift their heads and look to a future where they had competition coming in which would threaten that and yet we all know what happened you know the demise of the record industry and the revenues attached to the physical product was rapid and the industry has never recovered and yet they had that opportunity in 1994 because actually I brought to the two original guys who founded Napster to that meeting they had the opportunity to engage with talent to Keep an, you know, to have an open mind about technology, and they refused to do it. And they actually, one of them said to me, "What you've got to remember, Lisa, is people will always want to touch and feel the physical product." And I said, "No, what you've got to remember is your job is not to say they will. Your job is to ask what if they don't." And well, you can imagine my career at IFPI was fairly short-lived after that. But the point is that. They didn't want to touch and feel the physical product. And so never stand still, never assume that your current market will not change. You've always got to have capacity in business, whether it's from the very top or whether it's having a, a unit from within. You have to create capacity to lift your head and look down the road. That's great advice. And all of these experiences have turned you into the distinctive leader you are today. How would you best describe your leadership style? I was going to say, you know, I don't even feel like a leader and I really don't. I'm very much part of a team. I have different roles in different industries now. Over the last four or five years, I've taken on more non-exec roles. So I really enjoy that because, again, it gives me exposure to different industries and different dynamics and obviously different characters. So I think, you know, part of my, if you want to call it strengths as a leader, goes back to what I was like in, as a child, which is, I get dropped into different situations and you have to make connections. And I think I am definitely a people person and I make connections. And actually one of the, one of the reasons I think I probably have acquired good leadership skills is back to that ability to ask questions and be curious. And so, so many people say to me, 
how did you know that about X, Y, and Z? And I go, well, I just asked them. And I don't know about you, Andy, but I mean, I am amazed at the number of business events or social events I sit at where literally nobody asks you a question. How are you going to acquire any knowledge if, if that's the case? So I think my, my leadership style is, is, is very inclusive. It's probably the absolute, the furthest opposite of command and control you can get. But that's just my style. And it's only really, I'm 55 now. I think it's probably only in the last four to five years that I've acquired the confidence to believe that it's okay to be like that. And it's, and my style is my style and that's okay. Well, it's worked incredibly well. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that, you know, I, I think others should absolutely listen to that, that it's worked very well for you. And I also listening to some of the people that have influenced you, it's clearly been the amalgam of, of, of really looking and watching. And as you say, asking questions of those leaders about what you can glean from that and, and taking what you can leaving what isn't right for you, but also just sort of um, forming that together. And supporting others into leadership positions is a very important thing to you. You've mentioned it before, mm. particularly those who come from underrepresented backgrounds. Mm. You've talked about your slightly unconventional sort mm. of background and then ended up at County NatWest, fabulous organization culture. But, you know, there was probably an element I wouldn't have just, you know, I'm not Knoxbridge, mm. you know, Canada or whatever. But just what can leaders in finance and media do to really affect change in their organizations? And how can we encourage more diversity, especially into the boardroom now that you've entered into that side of um, of, of, of life? Well, I think there's there's two answers to that. I think financial services particularly struggles with increased diversity and and partly because we are struggling to attract women minority background i'd say probably more we're more struggling to attract women um and i think that's because there is the perception that it's not lifestyle friendly i think the pandemic will have changed that dramatically which is a good thing but i think one of the things and it's something that alpha which is one of the companies where i sit on the board which is an amazing company in terms of um culture and opportunity one of the things they're doing is getting much more involved with grassroots education because it's all very well saying we need x percent but we're just not getting the candidates coming through either because they don't see financial services as a as a destination career for them or because maybe they don't know people in that industry so morgan tilbrook who's the founder of alpha is actually very dyslexic and he's becoming increasingly involved in engaging with young people to say look, you know, this is a potential career opportunity. You don't need to have gone to university. He didn't. But So that's one way. The second thing, and, and I think that's really important, I think that's something I want Sankos to become more engaged with, is actually talking to young people pre-university about some of the options open to them. The second part of your question was around diversity in the boardroom. I think increasingly, it's one of my bugbears, is that we know that digital is so integral to business now. And when and you know, whether you are a digital first business or actually whether you're any other type of business where technology obviously has to form the backbone of what you do. And I look around the average boardroom and unquestionably average age is over fifty, probably comfortably north of fifty. 
I don't think many directors around most board tables would really, really understand technology to the extent that I think it needs to be understood. Because if you get technology right or you get it wrong, it totally transforms your business. And so I think there's a great opportunity to bring younger people into the boardroom not to say you need to have had previous non-exec experience, which is often, as we know, the, the the main issue for people breaking into the boardroom, but actually to say it's actually your experience in another area where we don't have the experience, where we really want your contribution. So that's something that I really want to push harder over the next year or two, is to say, take the opportunity to bring in a younger, more, more diverse a set of people, because they have knowledge that you couldn't even begin to acquire. And so take that opportunity. And the fact that it serves a secondary purpose in terms of improving diversity is actually not the prime reason for doing it, but it will. And have you ever seen it? Because obviously what's becoming more popular is having shadow boards. And that's exactly you know, made up of the younger generation. Mm. Have you ever seen that work well? Have you ever experienced that yourself? I've never seen it. So I've, I, I know about it in theory, but I've never seen it. I think the problem, I mean, we have subcommittees, we have, you know, a uh, sustainability committee at Saatchi, for example. I think the problem with shadow boards is actually without responsibility, you don't have accountability. And that's why I think a shadow anything doesn't necessarily work in practice to the extent that it's designed to. Mm. So getting people actually into the board with that responsibility is 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 far more the uh, the route that you would you would suggest. Yes, because I think the board has to work as a team. So somebody going into joining a board, for example, who hasn't had any board experience may feel intimidated. But as I said earlier. You know, they are bringing a unique set of skills at which combined. So if you like, it's the old sort of cliche, you know, it's the energy of youth and the wisdom of experience. So combined, you should have a pretty well-functioning board. But it is up to every director to look out for the other directors. You know, we all have a an individual but a collective fiduciary duty. Mm. So I wouldn't want the fact that, as I said, I think, you have to have responsibility to, to have accountability. I wouldn't want people to be put off by being intimidated about, for example, the risks or the liabilities of being a non-exec director. Yes, there are onerous responsibilities, but we are all there collectively to ensure that we we do the right job. Mm. And as a podcast, thank you for all of that, Lisa. And as a podcast for and about distinctive leaders, I always like to ask our guests, what makes someone distinctive in your eyes? And, and what would you say are the top three characteristics of a distinctive leader? Well, my perspective on this is, you know, I'm sure would, would, would not be the same as others, obviously, because I shy away from dogmatic leaders. And I suppose it's what we talked about earlier. It's about um, asking the questions and having the curiosity. And I think, in my experience, those that shout loudest listen least. So, you know, when when you asked me earlier about mentors, I mean, my in my experience, I think the most distinctive leaders, and I'm, I think both in a corporate but also in a personal capacity, are those that demonstrate 
trustworthiness, kindness, and humility. So I've said, and it's been my my guiding light for the last four or five years since I pursued this, what they call plural career, I will only work with people I like and respect and that I trust. Now, my judgment may prove wrong down the line, but I, the only bad experiences I've had, and they have been very few and far between, are when I've ignored my gut instinct around trust. So I really do think that, you know, people talk about authentic leadership and it's become a cliche now, but actually it is about being trustworthy and it is about being humble enough to engage with others. And it is about bringing out the best in people. And I think it's very difficult to bring out the best in people unless you are kind to them. No, look, I think that's great, a great description of, 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 of leaders that I admire as well. Uh, and, and I think that trust element is, is absolutely key. And lastly, at Leithwaite, our purpose is to create meaningful change through exceptional people. What one meaningful change would you like to see in your industry? Well, I'm involved in a number of different industries, but I think the same answer would apply to all of them in that I would like to see more women returners, you know, bringing their life skills back to the workplace. And, you know, we've had a much more open conversation about the menopause over the last three years. I mean, however awkward, and by the way, I mean, I remember cringing you know, when my sister first started talking about it. So I don't feel comfortable having those conversations. But I think, however awkward, if we don't have those honest conversations about the challenges, then we are going to miss out on years of input from great leaders and great talent and actually natural leaders because of the life skills that have been acquired. So I always you know, I, I look at a, a lot of my girlfriends, all of whom had great careers, the vast majority of whom are not working now because they've lost their confidence or they've dropped a ball and felt it was fatal. And if I was going to be an example to anybody, I would hope that I would be the example to go, do you know, it's okay to drop a ball. You know, I've dropped more than I could count. I've worked with bringing up three children, I'm 55. So <laughs> with everything that goes with being that age, just keep going and it will be okay. And there's an awful lot of people that are probably dropping as many balls as you, but they'll never admit to it. So I really feel strongly that we've got a great pool of talent in, you know, women and women that could return to the workplace that we really ought to be able to tap into and back to culture. We need to create an environment where they feel comfortable. And I think that's nothing more than actually people being honest and saying, you know what, it's not a one-way trajectory. Everybody stumbles and, and that's okay. And in fact, that's actually good because it makes you a much better leader. Thank you, Lisa Gordon. Thank you so much for being a guest on Distinctive Leaders oh, and for you. sharing your amazing journey. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Distinctive Leaders podcast and got as much out of listening to it as I did recording it. 
If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you could take 30 seconds to give the show a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. If you have any suggestions for what could make this podcast more beneficial for you, be it topic ideas, guest recommendations, or anything else, please feel free to get in touch at andrew.wallace at leithwaite.com. Thank you so much for listening.